Individuals and institutions around the U.S. are grappling with the history of racism in the country, as well as the ways they themselves have contributed to it. Many are working to adopt anti-racist approaches to their work and in their daily lives. How to be an anti-racist data scientist is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, Professor Emeritus of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Emily Hadley. Hadley is a research data scientist with the RTI International Center for Data Science. Her work spans several practice areas, including health, education, social policy, and criminal justice. While working there, she's used a variety of programming languages to do work from estimating the prevalence of teen vaping in Florida to forecasting demand for hospital beds amid the COVID-19 pandemic in North Carolina. Emily, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. How did anti-racist data science become something that you, I guess, became interested in and now you speak on? That's a a really great question. And I'll I'll lead with that. It's not something that I grew up thinking a lot about. I grew up in New Hampshire, which is uh, a very predominantly white state. I think 94, 95% of the state is white and just did not really think about race a lot when I was growing up. And it wasn't until I, I moved to North Carolina for college that I really began thinking about my, my place as a person who identifies as white. And Uh, I did a lot of work in college and post-college where I began to recognize certain privileges that I enjoyed because of uh, my race, but it really wasn't until last summer and the murder of George Floyd in particular where I really recognized that I could be doing more in the professional space uh, to address um, racism in, in the data science space. And so that's when I began to think critically about both the projects that I was a part of, as well as the coworkers that I was working with, the data we were collecting, and, and how we were using and communicating that data. And I, I really realized that there were a lot of opportunities to take small actions uh, as an analyst on your own computer that could have much larger ramifications and impacts and, and be an important part of the anti-racist steps that, as you noted, the, the whole country is starting to take. Can you talk a little bit about one of the projects or how this, how this thinking has informed the way that you've now, you're now approaching projects? Absolutely. So I'll say, you know, a large number of projects that I work on utilize race or ethnicity as a variable or a characteristic, either in the model building, but also in descriptive statistics. And it comes to us because it seems very familiar. Oh, we've collected this, we should do something with this variable. But race and ethnicity is actually a really complicated subject. Everything from, you know, where did the terms come from? So Latinx and Hispanic are both terms that were invented by the U.S. government. They're not from the community themselves. And so when you're grouping all these individuals together and then making an analysis based on it and synthesizing some sort of result for a community that may not always identify together, you're, you're making some some leaps and conclusions that, that might not be appropriate. Um, and so, you know, when, I, when I'm working on projects that use race or ethnicity as a component, thinking about everything from, you know, the the history and the context of how they were 
developed and defined into, you know, oftentimes we're dealing with small sample sizes. What groups am I grouping together? Why am I grouping them together? Is it appropriate to have an other category? And whose experiences is I grouping together when I use that? Mm-hmm. But perhaps the, the real takeaway when we're using race and ethnicity is the question of, you know, why are we even using this as a component? Um, because mm. we're making an assumption that people with the same race and ethnicity are all sharing the same experience. I recently went to a very informative workshop where they talked about, you know, if you're trying to capture something like marginalization, uh, it's not necessarily appropriate to assume that everyone with the same race and ethnicity is either experiencing marginalization or experiencing it to the same degree. Uh, so a lot of what I do is, you know, asking like people like me, data scientists and data analysts who, who are making decisions that about how to use race and ethnicity in their work. Sometimes it's alone on our own computers, like we don't get a lot of feedback on the decisions we make and encouraging the analysts and the scientists to be first more critical about that work and also to, to document it and communicate it to project staff because it is a, a pretty key decision um, that, that has ramifications for the whole project. Emily, your article in Towards Data Science actually reminded me of uh, the show Northern Exposure, which was on in the early 90s. And there was an episode in which they were arguing about the difference between truth and facts. And the doctor in the town sort of represents science in this episode. And he says the job of the scientist is to reveal the data, reveal the evidence, and step away, get out of the way. And uh, that the question I want to ask about that is, um, has, has to do with objectivity, has to do with pushback that you might be getting from colleagues. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Because you're not, I'm assuming as a data scientist, you're not, you're in the minority here. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. And, and you're not far off from the experiences that I've had. Uh, I've definitely received some pushback from initiating these conversations. And, and there's kind of two components to it. The, the first piece is I received feedback that, you know, just considering race in and of itself is racist. Um, and I, I do push back pretty strongly against that because, um, you know, it lends itself to this view that we should be moving towards a colorblind world, which I, I really disagree with that perspective because there's a lot wrapped up into people's experiences related to their racist and ethnicity that we're not just going to overcome. There, there's a whole history, you know whole system that's been been set up. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of literature in that space that I often refer people with that, um, that critique to, to observe and reflect on, you know, actually, we do want to be considering race, and we want to be pretty direct about it. But the second piece is, is the one that's a little bit more theoretical and harder to um, uh, discuss. And that's this idea of objectivity. And that's this idea yeah. of us being scientists and there being um, the idea that there's one true result and one yeah. given fact. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I can see sometimes like, you know, when you and I run the same mathematical program on the same data, we should get the same result. Like that is the the value of math and the value of statistics that, that the same logic should hold true. But then there's the element of us being data storytellers. And, and the data can tell multiple stories depending on how you look at it. Um, and that's really what I, I encourage people to, to dig deeper into. So, you know, referencing how you're using race, race and ethnicity, depend, like 
you can split up race and ethnicity groups in different ways to tell different stories. And it matters a lot how you choose to group or ungroup those groups. And it's not that one is true or one is false. It's just that one might be more applicable and more reasonable to a given question um, or a given area of interest. So I, I do encourage people to to move away from this idea that there is only one truth, um, because you know, especially in the data science field, we're we're making statements about the data um, that that other people will interpret and use moving forward. And I, I don't think it's fair to just say this is it, this is the truth, when there are multiple ways to to look at the same data set. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Richard, thank you for a northern exposure uh, reference. I yeah, mean, you, you and I are probably the only ones. <laughs> I was going to say, you're, you know, are you putting in this time reference? Are you going to next next year you're going to talk about the prisoner? Uh, okay, so you know, I'm going to. I think the comment here is that 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 you were making is really important. The idea of that that there's a you you can get the same output given the same input if your methods are kind of stable and they're kind of there's this you, you can sort of connect all the dots in that path. But but the, the thing that seems like it's critical and part of what you're challenging is the notion of what should the inputs be? What do those inputs represent? And so, you know, how when, when you're involved in projects and you start talking about kind of ideas about what should be the inputs in the models that we're using, because if you're doing data science, I assume you're doing some kind of prediction or some kind of classification is often an outcome. But when you, you know, how, how does thinking about the, those inputs or even the defining the outputs play out given what you've been been considering and reflecting on? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a really good question of where the inputs are coming from and how involved the data scientists are at the point of collection. And I'll say we're I think we're moving towards a space where where um, the the field is becoming much more aware of how important it is to have the data scientists and data analysts involved much earlier in the process. So everything from, you know, defining the particular question and how that information is collected to also ensuring representativeness in the data. That's that's a really big piece for us because as you as you pointed out, you know, I'm on a lot of projects where we're doing prediction and we're doing forecasting and we're doing some some models that have pretty high degrees of uncertainty mm-hmm. um, and also have the the ability to be pretty biased for one group or another if we're not paying attention to where where the data is coming from and, and what's being collected. So I'm a really big advocate of having a data scientist involved in that data collection process whenever possible. And then also on the, on the flip side, making sure that subject matter experts are involved. You know, as a, as a data scientist, my job is not to be a subject matter expert in a particular field. It's to have a skill set that I can apply to a lot of different areas. And, you know, I, I think at the beginning of the episode, it was mentioned the wide variety of spaces that I work in. And, you know, right now I'm on a criminal justice project and an opioids project and a project about infant mortality in low and middle income countries. These are all three topics that I don't know a lot about. And so when I'm deciding what the outcome is of the model, that's when it becomes really, really important to talk with the subject matter experts and be like, what are we actually trying to predict? What are we actually trying to forecast? And how big is the cost of an error? Um, because that that will also greatly impact you know how how important some of those inputs are you know if we have really skewed data and the cost of an error is really high um, we, we might not want to pursue the project another area that I, I would like you to weigh in on is you mentioned telling stories about data and that's something that's a phrase that I've s- seen you use this is another area where you might get pushback where what's the relationship between data and storytelling and I think a lot of a lot of scientists uh, 
many of them we've had on this program are very good at telling stories about their data, and they're, they do it very naturally. But some, I think, are un, a lot of scientists are uncomfortable with this, uh, this relationship. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about the relationship between your work and telling stories about your work? Certainly. Storytelling is a very key component of what I do, and I think it's a key component of what a lot of the data scientists I work with do. And it, it's coming from a place where a lot of the, the groups that we're working with, so that could be government, that could be industry, that could be academia, they want to use what we're doing to make decisions. And so at the end of the day, you know, I, I'm working on a project right now where, where somebody just wants to know, is the model biased? Mm -hmm. Use this. And, and at the end of the day, that's kind of the statement that I have to get down to. And they're, they're interested in that the technical details are accurate and good and quality, um, but, but they don't have training in that area. And they're not necessarily that interested in digging really deep into the plots and into the numbers and into mm -hmm. the p-values. Like they kind of just want that, that final piece. Um, and so that communication element is, is huge and often much larger pieces of our projects than we anticipate. Uh, you know, how can we get a plot that's user friendly and expresses what we're trying to express in a way that's not, you know, biased based on what we want to tell. It's, you know, the story that's actually being told by the data, mm -hmm. but is also told in a way that's useful for our stakeholders. Like, I, mm -hmm. I can't just give people a whole bunch of significant p-values and be like, mm, this is what important all right, you figure out what to do next. Like, they, they want me to t generally tell them what to do next. And so I think that's where that storytelling piece comes in. Mm -hmm. You've seen what's significant, you've seen what the model output looks like, and helping the client figure out what to do with it um, is, is a really key piece of, of applying these techniques in practice. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Emily Hadley about how to be an anti-racist data scientist. Emily, I'm going to ask you a question about not not the clients you work with or data scientists, but maybe for the public who is reading news stories about you know data that's parsing populations in particular ways. What sort of advice would you give to a news reader about how to sort of be able to suss out whether what they're the data they're reading about is, is useful, or I'm not even quite sure what uh, what adjectives I want to use here. But how to how to sort of navigate sort of that conversation around race and data, and when whether there's advice you could give to a news consumer about like what to be thinking about when reading these kinds of news stories. So news has really gained a lot of interest in data and the way that data is collected and the way that's being used. And, and I'll kind of talk about a couple of ideas on this spectrum. So the, the first is related to how the data is collected, and in particular, surveillance. Um, and, mm. and there's becoming more and more news that reflects that, you know, a lot of the surveillance that's happening is oftentimes of communities of color, for example. We see a lot more, um, you know, cameras that are tracking people and movement um, in, in oftentimes communities of color, but also your, your cell phone and your data collection. You know, I think that there's a level of education that comes with understanding exactly what tools are collecting your data and how they're, they're using it. And I would love to see more of that um, in the school systems uh, because, you know, a lot of companies have ad profiles on you and you might not even know it, or they've been tracking your location for years and you don't even know it. And I think um, I really encourage consumers of news, but also consumers more broadly to become aware of what, what data is being collected on them, if they can get rid of that data, and if they can't and they're uncomfortable with it, steps that they might be able to take to advocate for the use of that data. And then the piece related to that is 
every time you see machine learning and AI in the news, I encourage you to think critically about what actually is happening and what, what the outcome of that model is. Because, you know, you do have to ask yourself, like, would I want my information fed into that model and some sort of decision to be made about me that's going to have a really big impact on my life? Um, and if you don't, you know, say something about it or do something about it because it, we're, we're moving into a space where algorithms are really efficient and can make decisions quickly, um, but, but they're also impacting people's lives. You know, in, in your uh, your article, I mean, certainly we could we could step through all the five steps, but I would I'm going to I'm going to leave that as a homework assignment to our to our re our listeners. But I, I would like to explore at least a couple of the ideas that you bring up. And and step two was to learn about how data and algorithms have been used to perpetuate racism. Mm -hmm. Could you give a couple of examples of of how that has happened? Yeah, certainly. So. Whew. Um, there's a there's a lot that's that's happening in this space right now. I would say um, criminal justice is one of the, the the biggest spaces, and it's something that I do a lot of work in at the moment. Um, and there's a lot of different pieces to it. So I think one of the most common ones is going to be your facial recognition algorithms. Facial recognition has gained a lot of notoriety, and it has also gained that because some of the initial algorithms were based off of training data. So those are those input data sets that were not representative of the general population. Uh, and so you're you're seeing um, better better predictions for people who are white than for people who are black. Uh, but even also in the criminal justice space, something that I'm actually actively working on as part of my work is related to um, pretrial risk assessment algorithms. So these are algorithms that um, predict um, the, the likelihood that somebody is going to, to fail to appear or uh, go on to commit a crime after they've been arrested. Um, and there's increasing interest in, in judges using these to make decisions about um, uh, whether or not to, to keep an individual in jail before their first appearance, and um, if so, whether or not to set bail and how much for. Uh, and they're pretty controversial. I should note that our involvement is from the validation side, not from the development side, not from the creation side, and really kind of an interest of, you know, are these are these uh, biased? Are these tools biased? And are these tools going to be biased in the particular regions that are interested in using them? Can you talk, can I interrupt just for one second, just to, to, to clarify? So can you talk a little bit about what is, when you say that are, are these algorithms biased? Could you talk about what is that, when you see an algorithm biased, what does that mean? A biased algorithm is one that's going to be making a, a different decision for one individual than another individual, where pretty much the only distinguishing factor between those two individuals is the protected class. So that could be, generally we're looking at race, ethnicity, and gender, um, but you could potentially look at others as well. Thank you. So, Emily, I have a, a kind of a larger question about the era of misinformation we're living in right now. And do you have any tips for us on countering that? Uh, tips for journalists? Uh, this is a this is a tough time, and uh, I think things are are getting better. But this, the you know, the the disinformation that's passed along in uh, in social media is it's just so rapid and so fast. In your work and in and in your writing, how do you how do you take on this challenge? It's been a really tough year and a really really tough challenge, especially because uh, data is often at the core of it. People put a lot of faith in statistics and numbers, and I see all sorts of numbers being associated with things that are are blatantly untrue or false. Um, and and people will will latch onto a number and use it to justify, you know why they're not getting a particular vaccine or why they're not showing up to vote or all sorts of different things. Um, 
And it can be really, really challenging to, to, as you pointed out, not just tell true news from fake news, but also tell like what is an accurate statistic and what is valid. A lot of it has to do with education. I'm a big proponent of basic statistics and data science education mm-hmm. for all students, you know, before college. I think having the ability to to look at, you know, a piece of news that's come out and understand, you know, well, who was the sample? Where did this number come mm-hmm. from? Who funded this study? Like that type of information and that type of critical thinking is so important to stop that sort of reactionary moment when you're like, oh my gosh, that statistic is so terrible. Like now it's going to totally change my behavior. And then from a news perspective as well, I think, you know, journalists, um, I'm not a journalist by training. I don't know how much training journalists have in statistics, but for the same reasons, like, uh, you know, what are you putting out? How strong is the data? What should you trust and helping your readers and and listeners better uh, make informed decisions about, you know, getting back to like, there's not really always an objective truth like two people can be right at the Mm -hmm. same time with very different results and the interpretation matters a lot and the context in which you're using them and so um, I think that we're hopefully going to move towards a space where we can put a little bit more trust in in news and in data Um, but it'll take it'll take a kind of a village to come together and and Mm -hmm. agree on that. Yeah, you, you probably won't hear hear any arguments here about promoting statistical and data literacy. <laughs> I think you have a very sympathetic audience here. I was like, you are singing John's tune. <laughs> yes. You know, one thing I, I as I was looking through some of your 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 work, and I, I really like this this idea of when thinking about building a model, thinking like an adversary as being part of this. And I and I, I was thinking about that also in terms of when I'm teaching modeling or when I'm thinking about this, about, you know, I, I, I've not thought about doing that in my classes, but that's kind of an, it's a really interesting idea. Can you talk a little bit about what does it mean to think like an adversary when you're building a model? Certainly, yeah. And this came from uh, actually my undergrad experience. I was a statistics major and a public policy major. And we yeah. had this saying in our public policy major uh, that good intentions were not enough. Just because you have these good intentions about what you're building or what you're using your data for does not mean that somebody's going to come along and, and honestly do something pretty terrible with it. Uh, so kind of uh, the, the classic example that, that I give in this area is um, the Twitter bot that I'm pretty sure it was maybe Microsoft, might have been Twitter that, that put out, generated this this AI bot that, that people were supposed to be able to respond to a couple of years ago. And oh, I'm pretty sure yeah. she had a, a female persona. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, yeah. and the 4chan portion of the internet found out about this. And because it was AI and machine learning, it was it was learning from the information that it was being fed. Um, and so a whole bunch of users just started feeding it a lot of uh, anti-Semitic and racist and, and other bits of information. And so within about 24 hours, you had a very racist, homophobic, anti-Semitic chatbot. Yeah. Um, And so that's one of those things where, you know, the intentions were probably really good to be like, oh, look how far like automated natural language processing and chatbots have come like this is very cool, which it is. And, uh, you know, that that adversarial attack is, is is a section of the Internet that decided that they wanted to kind of take this for their own purposes. Uh, so so definitely, you know, every time we build a model, it's it's thinking about, you know, both like how could users who are inputting data in this model mess with the model itself? Um, and also, you know, how could the output be used to justify something that we're, we're not interested in justifying? I'm, I'm curious if you can think about as, as you've, as you've evolved, as you've developed, you know, sort of on your journey in thinking about this and becoming an anti-racist data scientist, you know, what, what advice do you give for, for this, the st- those of us that are teaching the next generation, whether it's teaching the next generation that are working in 
in quantitative departments or data science statistics or in journalism. Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, the first piece was, um, you know, it was really important for me to recognize that, you know, I am a white woman, but as a white woman, I have a responsibility to step up and do something about this every day. I think sometimes, you know, work is placed on our colleagues of color in a way that burdens them with a lot of work. And so stepping up and saying, you know, I am somebody and I can do something about this. And then also following up with, and it requires me to do something every day, you know, and I'll, I will never get to the point where I've like checked off this box and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm anti-racist. Like, no, like, you know, it's a, it's a conscious decision that I make every single day and have to consistently reevaluate and really accept feedback on as well like you know the willingness to make mistakes and know that I'm going to be wrong and sometimes I'm going to uh, you know have behave incorrectly and, and accepting that you know I'm constantly learning is, is probably my my biggest piece of recommendation it's not easy uh, but it's it's so worth it you know to be building this field where um, we're moving towards a space where we're really working to be anti-racist and building the society that, that we view and I would say that you know kind of encouraging students in particular and, and your coworkers. the reasons I do these conversations is I want other people to get excited about doing this work. I'm certainly not the only person doing this work. There's a large community that's existed long before I got into this. Um, And I think kind of making that active choice to have this be a part of your career uh, is something I really like to see more people do. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Emily, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Emily. Thanks, Emily. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.